Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by handweaving.net, the comprehensive weaving website with more than 75,000 historic and modern weaving drafts, documents, and powerful digital tools that put creativity in your hands. Now it's simple to design, color, update, and save your drafts. Handweaving.net's mission is to preserve the rich heritage of handweaving and pass it down to you. Visit handweaving.net and sign up for a subscription today. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Ann Merrow. Since Jean Carver and her husband, Dan, bought the historic Imperial Stock Ranch over 30 years ago, they have viewed stewardship of the land as an essential part of raising sheep and cattle. Jean recently founded the Shanico Wool Company. Jean, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to reconnect with you and the other folks at Long Thread Media. Uh, it's like a, a reconnecting to family. And I know that you are out there on your ranch in eastern Oregon, and that really is such a grounding space for you. Can you tell me what's there on the ranch? Wow. Yeah, it's a timeless place. It, it's a great reminder that we're temporary stewards, that this place, the land itself, it, it goes on and on. And, and regardless of which humans are there for the time being, it's, it's greater than us. You know, it's, it's a reminder that there are things greater than us and that our work is to do the best job we can while we're here, while it's our turn. So um, I'm on the Imperial Stock Ranch, and this is our 151st year of continuous operation. It's one of those American stories of the trail west and the covered wagons and a young man who ended up coming here to, to start his dream, lived in a cave two miles north of where I'm sitting, established his homestead claim in 1871. He had been born on the Oregon Trail in that in that wagon and eventually built his empire, which was based on sheep production and wool and also cattle and farming. So this ranch has done hay and grain production and cattle and sheep raising throughout its 150 plus years. So I'm on the Columbia Basin Plateau. We're south of the Columbia River quite a ways, but it's this high desert landscape with rim rocks and great grasslands and an unbelievable water in what appears to be an open high desert landscape. It's amazing how much, how much water is here and wildlife, elk, deer, antelope, upland game birds, even bear. Most people don't think of bear here, but it's a very rich landscape that if you're flying by on a highway, you might not realize. But when you take the time to walk the canyons and the rims and get into the bottoms, it, it's an amazing landscape. So I'm here and we're carrying on with all of those production areas, just as the people before us have for a century and a half. I had heard the name Shanico before when I came out to visit you once. So when I first started seeing the name Shanico a few years ago, 
I thought maybe it was connected with that place. And now I've I've learned that you are connected with Shanico Wool Company. Can you tell me what Shanico Wool and what Shanico Wool Company are? Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> this is a really fun time in my life. You know, so we had our own family ranching operation, which is still going on. And wool was an important harvest. And it's been the core of human textiles for over 10,000 years. So it's a really important fiber. And that, that's no accident. It's truly a miracle fiber. And so that was our heritage. And we were carrying on as, as ranchers. And then, you know, you must sell what you harvest in order to continue on. And it also provides, you know, for human survival. So having fiber for apparel and textiles is really important. But in 1999, we attempted to sell our wool as we had for 130 years from here almost and found that we could know our, all of our regional facilities to take that wool in and manufacture it to goods in textiles was closing and going offshore. And it was a devastating time in America's history of textiles. And today we live with about, with less than 10% of the infrastructure remaining in the United States for manufacturing our own apparel and textiles. So we couldn't sell the wool and it sent us down a new road, which was to take our own harvest to market. That's another story. I worked that for you know almost two decades and then stepped away from that business, sold that business in order to become my husband's caregiver. And we were on a, a really difficult journey there with a degenerative disease. And so I, I went to the sidelines. But we had always had a history with Oregon's most famous ghost town, which is 12 miles from where I'm sitting at our ranch headquarters. And it's the ghost town of Shaniko, which is S-H-A-N-I-K-O. Shaniko was a railhead when the railroad, the Columbia Southern Railway, built a spur off the Columbia River into the interior of Oregon to get closer to where things like food and fiber are raised and then they must make their way to the markets from the earliest times. The railhead becomes a commerce center and in fact Shaniko became the second leading center of commerce in the state of Oregon. And it was the wool shipping capital of the world in 1901. So when you go there, still, uh, a few people live there. But, of course, it died as a, as a commerce center after about 15 to 20 years began it decline. As they built the railroad on, it was no longer a railhead. And so you still see the remnants of that very historic period, late 1800s and, and, well, in the early 1900s. So you see the giant wool warehouse where millions of pounds of wool were stored to be loaded on trains to make its way to eastern markets, right? And it's just a great place. The old Columbia Southern Hotel is still there and remnants of the jail <laughs> and a former, a former really exciting era, era in this uh, region's history. So as I sat on the sidelines, having sold my business and caring for Dan, companies that I had worked with never stopped calling and reaching out for a sustainably produced, fully traceable wool supply. And I should add one other thing. In 2015, at the request of a brand partner in the apparel industry that I was working with, they asked us to be part of a third-party audited program to ensure our land stewardship 
and our animal husbandry. This was a growing concern in the markets, both in craft, apparel, and all textiles, that just as in food where we want to know where it came from and, and more so how is it produced, how are the animals treated, how is the land cared for, this became, first it was important in the food sector, but it's moved into the textile sector as well. And so at the request of this brand, we became involved in a new standard that was being developed called the Responsible Wool Standard, developed by Textile Exchange. That is a global nonprofit headquartered in the U.S., by the way. Their whole mission is to improve the sustainability of the textile industry around the globe. And they focus particularly on the fibers. So they built a set of standards, and one of those was the Responsible Wool Standard. So at the request of this brand, we became a pilot audit site in 2015 and 16 in the final stages of the development of the standard. And then when the standard was launched in 16, we became the first ranch, our family ranch, certified to the responsible wool standard in the world. So here I was, a responsible wool standard <laughs> of agricultural facility producing wool, but we were now on the sidelines. And the brands kept calling, and this was a growing request. So with my husband's support, I figured I would bring a new company that would not make products, would not make yarn, would not have wholesale accounts, trade shows, and all that goes with having a yarn business and a apparel business, but that I would just bring a supply of certified wool that met these global benchmarks, leading benchmarks for land stewardship, and animal husbandry. And so that was how we launched Shanico Wool because Shanico Wool Company is not just our story. It's a much bigger story. It's the story of all the families that join me. And today that's nine family ranches in the West that in this region who meet these standards and are under the umbrella of Shanico Wool Company. And I chose that name because it represents that greater story. It also represents the history because it's a historical place. It represents the history of really wool in our, in our whole history, the importance of it and sheep, what they've done for humankind and their importance on the land by the creator, their impacts, their contribution to healthy landscapes. And it it's honors that regional system, those local regional systems of, of collecting the wool and the warehouses, which are still critical today. Our regional, I have three regional Western wool warehouses today who are under RWS certification, where the ranch's wool comes to those warehouses. Important pieces of the supply chain. We need them. They weigh it. They receive it. They core test it. They help establish price. And then they are the first step in assuring full traceability and content claim for certified wool in everything from yarn to fabric to finished goods. They are very important. So the Shanika Wool Company story is a bigger story than our family ranch. It's the story of a region, of a system, and all the pieces that are important to bringing a traceable and intimate connection for the consumer to the origins of the product they have in their hands 
especially like knitters and crocheters and hand weavers who are taking that and converting that sunlight energy and that fiber into those beautiful handmade treasures. So Shaniko is a is a combined story of a regional effort to bring a traceable and truly sustainable and actually regenerative wool to the market. So the first time I heard about Shanico was when I bought some yarn that included 50% Shanico wool in it. And I thought, is this a, is this a breed? So this <laughs> tells me something about where the wool is from and what the standards and expectations are. But what kind of wool is it? We have collectively the finest wool supply in the United States and North America. Because we are able to aggregate this wool, we collect this bunch, but all of us are Merido or Merino crossbred breeders. And in fact, very similar Merino genetics are shared by the growers. See, I reached out to one and then two ranches to join me back in early 2018. And I've never looked for a rancher since. Those ranchers that join me are bringing the others. They know each other. They source um, their Merino rams from similar breeders. And so collectively, we not only have a large scale of this fine Merino wool, which is very versatile, has many applications, but we also have very similarity in the breeding and genetics which means that it really, there's a, there's a feel, there's a torar, torar, the word for, it's applied to wine. I'm not sure how you say that, Anne, but it's T-E-R-R-O-I-R. That word applied mm. from the food sector applies to wool. And uh, we have one company who's using the wool, making luxury sweaters, who have very broad experience in sourcing merino wool in their history. And they work, in fact, with a consultant who is a very sought-after consultant to brands a whole lifetime in uh, global sourcing, who says, as a scale of wool, this has a hand that surpasses any group of merino that she has worked with in her career. So I think it has to do with this consistent genetic and the fact that it's grouped and traceable. So we're Merino, and we can provide, if you know anything about microns of wool, you know the lower the number, the finer the micron, the softer the feel, and then closer next to the skin that it goes. So all wool is good wool. From very coarse wool to very fine wool is good wool. We're going to make that clear. All wool is good wool. It's just it's better suited to various applications. Sometimes you want something a little rougher. Sometimes you want something that's going to felt really well. And also, like I say, there's just you want there's wool is valuable for rugs and carpets. It's valuable in the automotive industry, in aerospace industry. It's across so many sectors. Uh, non-wovens, uh, so we can supply microns at scale, anywhere from 17 to 17 and a half micron, which is your best next to skin layers for wool underwear, right? To mm -hmm. 24 micron that you want for a, a coarser application. So we cross that. And by the end of November, I'm adding one more ranch right now to my group in the next six weeks. And by the time they're on board, we will be shearing collectively off 10 ranches, right around a half a million pounds of this beautiful wool each year. 
That's wow. the scale we're at today from 10 family ranches. Wow. Now, the interesting thing about terroir is that it, it comes from it comes from the word earth. And so it means yeah. usually it means, you know, relating to the earth where you are, but, you know, certainly relating to soil and earth. When I was a kid, my mom did a lot with um, the Sierra Club. And so she knew about John Muir, who famously said that sheep were hooved locusts and I think that that is not what I saw when I visited your ranch. And so I'm, I'm curious what, how, what you think about that. Well, I'm not sure. Is a locust considered a bad thing? And so is that, <laughs> is that the connotation? <laughs> I mean, is there's, are all species good? They do all species have a place, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. can you clarify your question? That's a very good question. I guess what I mean is I have the idea that grazing sheep just mowed down all of the all of the plants and that once sheep went through, there would be nothing left. And this is a little bit of a leading question because I know that this is not what I saw at your ranch. But I think that that might be something other people expect too. No, you see something very, very amazing. You see 151 years of domestic sheep grazing and livestock impact, as well as a viable population of wildlife grazers, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And you see complete ground cover. You see complete ground Mm -hmm. cover. This is an amazing thing. And so, you know, I, you know, one of the favorite groups I've had over the years, and I've hosted thousands of people over since 19, since 1990, You know, in the late 80s, we developed a conservation management plan that would guide us. Think carbon plan today, but but truly it's a conservation management plan that's looking at the whole landscape in a broad way, your entire operation, and looking at the interconnected systems and cycles that are at work here of soil, water, seeds, plants, sunlight, and, and the vegetation communities, healthy forage that covers the dirt, that holds soil, that all the microbial activity that keeps our ecosystems vital. We looked at that and with our agency partners developed this conservation management plan, which was finalized in 1989. And that's been our guide from there forward. And first you have to change your mindset and then you move down this 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 series of evolving, changing practices as you learn and observe. And so the action of sheep on the land, but the favorite group, I started to tell you, I love having groups of kids here. I love having school groups because they have many misconceptions. They pick up from their parents, um, media, wherever. But the thing that I simplify this to is this. If animals are overgrazing a landscape and destroying it, it's never their fault. It's the humans managing them. It's their fault. It's Mm -hmm. our fault. We have to take the responsibility. So if you leave animals alone, unimpacted by humans, unimpacted by fencing, left pre-human occupation, if you will, Animals, Mm -hmm. grazing animals don't like eating where they've urinated. And 
you know, they want to, they want clean ground to eat on, not where they're, not where they've been pooping, Mm -hmm. right? If I can say (laughs) that on this podcast. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But so they will, they will bite plants and graze areas and move, bite plants and graze areas and move. And that is how the creator intended it. Grasses and grazing animals evolved on the planet together. And so as we humans come along and take over the stewardship and nurturing of those animals and these landscapes, we need to pay attention and we need to make sure that we don't force them to stay in the same place too long or come back too often, too soon, or put too many on this stretch of land more than it can handle. And, and destroy those vegetation communities, which is how you see it's mowed off. Now you see dirt and dust. Mm-hmm. That's what you think of with locusts, grasshoppers, the Dust Bowl of the 30s. Okay, the devastated landscapes. Well, we set the stage for that by our activities as humans. Us controlling our farming practices and our grazing practices, we set the stage for those kind of catastrophic events. And so the answer to you is sheep are actually holistic grazers by nature. We have to stay out of their way or we have to nurture and support those interconnected relationships. They're easy on the land as an animal. They're not that large. They don't weigh so much like elk, even deer, cattle. So they're easy on the land. They love to be on the move. So you can put as many in this area for a short time and let them bite those plants. You know, you know how all of us need work of purpose. Mm -hmm. We need purposeful work, purposeful work in our lives. We need food, clothing, and shelter. And by the way, sheep provide all three. That's true. The lamb that sustains us, the fiber that clothes us, and the skins of the food animal, which was are the early shelters of humankind. Mm -hmm. So food, clothing, shelter all come from sheep. If you take sheep and add water, it equals life to man. That's how it is. It's that simple. And so we need to nurture the natural relationships and the positives that sheep have on landscape. So I don't know where I was in this story (laughs) because that's how I am. I get off track. (laughs) But um, sheep have a lot of positive impacts to the land. They bite plants that stimulates uh, increased biomass below and above ground. It stimulates root development, which is also involved in microbial activity, which is drawing down carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. They get increased seed head production. So the stimulation of plants by grazing animals like sheep is critically important to the health of of all the land surfaces of our ecosystems. We cannot take grazing animals off our landscapes because that will contribute to the increasing climate crisis. We also need to make sure that those grazing animals are Mm well-managed so that we don't harm the ecosystems, that we're, we're bringing a really, we're helping support a positive impact of those grazing animals. So we all have a work of purpose and the creator gave grazing animals work of purpose. Mm -hmm. The purpose of sheep is to bite grass. That's their purpose in life, is to bite grass. And if we allow them to do that, it helps all of us, the entire human community on this planet. So the hoof action across the land is good. 
in terms of infiltration and preparing places for seed heads to drop and their natural elimination of urine and dung is putting more nutrient back into. So they are the first stage processors of harvesting sunlight energy in plants, biting that protein in a plant. Then in the chewing their cud, right? Mm -hmm. They lie down, they're content. They've gathered, they've moved across biting those plants. They've gathered that protein. They lie down to rest. Their face to the sun, their ears level. They're chewing and processing. They're at peace. They're the picture of peace and contentment. They're processing protein, mm-hmm. first stage processor. And that protein is converted to other forms of protein, one of which is fiber, the wool they grow. And we harvest that annually. And that beautiful protein fiber is not only giving us value to humans, but in the process of creating it, they had a positive impact to the landscape, to the ecosystem. So in my opinion, sheep are not locusts. It's man that creates the devastation. It's always us who are guilty, Anne. So you're not talking about something like minimizing the impact of sheep. You're talking about making sheep have a positive impact, right? We are maximizing the natural positive benefits of grazing sheep across landscapes. Absolutely. And um, we're actually measuring that. And you can prove it. We can prove it. We can. We are. We're in the process of doing exact work. We're almost finishing our third year of comprehensive research and measurement of the ecosystem impact of our ranching operations, of which the primary focus is sheep grazing. So tell me about that project to evaluate, demonstrate the impact of these ranches on carbon and on the climate? That's a great question. And thank you for asking. I was motivated to do this. It's just the next step in a logical series for us that began in the late 80s when um, one of the wake-up calls for us was, you know, we work with a lot of agency partners and our fish and wildlife partners do a lot of counts of other species populations. Mm -hmm. In 1990, only two salmon returned home to spawn in a creek that is born on our ranch. We have the first 15 miles of a major tributary to the wild and scenic Deschutes River. And it was historically a salmon spawning ground a significant one, and a significant fishery for salmon. In 1992, came home to spawn, and it was a huge wake-up call. It was a motivation for us, our neighbors, and our agency partners to say, how do we change this? And so we hope that one day we would see that population increase. We hoped, Mm -hmm. but you don't know. But we were now implementing this broad conservation plan over 50 square miles of land that we control Mm -hmm. with the first 15 miles of that creek on us. And I will tell you that 20 years later, record numbers of salmon were returning to that same creek. This is huge. And so that was going on long before I got into the fiber journey. That never started for me until 1999 when we couldn't sell wool. So then I naturally and instinctively tied our fiber to our story of resource management and our heritage. Mm -hmm. Great. That worked for me. 
Then when I joined the RWS movement, it was to have the credibility of having a third-party certifier come in annually and inspect our land stewardship and our animal husbandry and also today our worker welfare. It's a one welfare standard, the land, animals, and the people who tend both. Care of land, care of animals, care of our workers. Okay, so even with that, and in 2019 in the winter, a brand challenged me. In spite of our observations, our agency testimonies, our RWS certification, somebody still says to me, yes, but as you raise sheep and bring wool to market, are you destroying the soil and the land? It's this concept that us in agriculture are just bad guys. We've ruined the soil, we pollute the waters, and all we do is put methane in the atmosphere. We are just bad guys. And it's really difficult to face that on an ongoing basis, knowing that that's not the truth. But you know what? No one ever actually measured what we did. We could see indicator species changing, but we didn't have hard data. So I found the right scientists to join me, and that challenge was a motivation to finally measure the impacts, the total impacts of our ranches. So I now have three PhD range scientists on this project. I also have additional consultants that are GIS soil scientists at the highest level of our NRCS partners, Natural Resource Conservation Service. We are working with a collective group of research scientists with peer review and third-party verification of our research model, our sampling protocols, our data, and our findings. So we had two goals. The first one was let's determine the net carbon budget of our ranching operations. At the end of a year, just as you and I, all of us work and we spend right. money, Mm -hmm. Let's take it to money for a moment. Mm -hmm. Our economic capital. At the end of the year, did we put a little more money in the bank or did we put a little more into our debt load? It's the same way with the environment. I am simplifying somewhat, but in truth, at the end of the year, are we net emitters, polluters, or are we net banking and environmental value? Mm -hmm. So what is our true ecosystem impact, our net carbon budget? Measurement of soil organic carbon, how much carbon is in the soils and grasslands, is a key performance indicator of the ecosystem. And if you have increasing levels of putting carbon in your soil on increasing over time, there are many collateral benefits to that besides carbon. So you're measuring that, but it's not the only benefit. It has multiple other benefits, including water and effects on both plant and animal biodiversity. So we are determining the net carbon budget of our ranching operations using both field measurements, mm -hmm. which are an investment, and computer leading computer models. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is if we are net banking of an environmental value, how much are we banking? So I can give you an example if you wish, or we can move on. But I can tell you with three years of measurements on our ranch, yeah what that summary is. And also I have moved this model across. We've moved it across seven ranches. As of this year, we have two years of baseline measuring 
on seven of our ranches, which is about a million and a half acres. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently baselining about another million acres in the next 12 months to get us all of the land in Shanika Wool. We will have a baseline of having measured our current carbon sequestration levels. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious. We put 20 years of our own harvest data into the computer models, 20 years of history Mm -hmm. on hay and crop and livestock production and so on. And then all of your inputs go in there, your electrical use, equipment use, your fossil fuel consumption. We even calculate methane emissions. Mm -hmm. So all of that is accounted for. And in our high desert location, we always said we got eight to 10 inches of rain a year, Mm -hmm. which is not much. Every drop is precious, which is why you need to manage conscientiously. Mm But in the last three years, we all know we're in a drought cycle, not Mm -hmm. to mention unpredictable big climate events, whether it be hurricane, flood, fire, tornado. I mean, we are in a changing system and we're all living with that. And we're all going to keep learning too. We never stop learning about it. But I can tell you that in the last three years, we've had not right around half of our eight inches. So this Mm -hmm. is significant and that affects your carbon sequestration. Anyway, there was some concern on the part of the scientists that we were gonna be measuring with those kind of low rainfall numbers, but we needed to begin. So let's just do it. So with three years of data on average, on a net basis, our ranch is adding an additional 1.6 tons of carbon to our soils and grazing lands annually. Wow. On 32,000 acres. That's 51,200 tons of carbon that we are adding. Those are credible, state-of-the-art laboratory and leading computer model summaries. Okay. And that equates to, what does that mean? How much is a ton of carbon in the soil mean that you added this year on a net basis? Mm-hmm. It means that we drew down approximately 187,000 tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. One ranching effort. This is not a cheap investment, Anne. Mm -hmm. This costs money and it's taken a lot of time and use of of consulting experts who can draw down the mapping, who can cite our monitoring points based on the soil types, slope, elevation, vegetation communities, use, and have enough sites measured to be credible, and so on. Where they're located is critical. And then you send somebody out to do all the sampling. We soil test twice a year down to 60 centimeters. Mm -hmm. Wow. On all these, we've established over 300 monitoring points. Mm -hmm. And we also cut a known square footage of biomass at each. The soils go to one lab, the biomass to another, but they're both important in giving us a whole picture. So that is the summary result of what we're investing in. But I think the importance to this, just to support the value of agriculture besides food, clothing, and shelter, the greatest deliverable we bring, if we're managing correctly, Mm -hmm. is the ecosystem positive that we bring. Mm -hmm. What is the true impact of those sheep grazing that landscape. Well, here it is. That is the true impact. And you don't get that by dining on delicious lamb or wearing beautiful wool. You only know that if you measure it and begin to think about 
the power that that has for all of us with the climate situation and the human community on this whole planet. This is a, this is a very important next journey for us. And let's say that our results didn't give us what we hoped. It's given us the best possible thing to influence changes in our management going forward. So we do move ever closer to positive impacts. And this is something that the companies that were approaching you, the brands that were approaching you because they wanted something traceable, they were approaching you even before you had this data. It seems like what you were already doing is something that brands big and small are hungry for. Well, I hope so. And I I think you're right. And my own journey in textiles takes me there, which I I don't know if I should mention that. I mean, I had a book out come out last winter and it's it's about where we started this conversation, the importance of place. It's about place. Mm -hmm. Turns out place is really important. I don't care if you're in Peru or Bolivia or um, South Africa or Australia or North America, or South America, place is important. You know, in, the, in, in our history, everything happened locally. And from locally, it became regional. And then at least it was within country. But we are at a point in today's world where we shifted to these global models for everything that we make and get and need. And we have learned now over time, there are real consequences to that global model with the trail of oil shipping it all over the world. What has it done to us? Personally, our our personal health, our families, our communities, our nations. So wherever you are, this is important. That place is important. And so, yes, I think people are truly interested in origins And whose hands touched it from the beginning to the end until I get it? You know, every hand that touched it is part of the story. Every hand is connected. It makes us more appreciative. It makes that product richer to us. We value it more. It makes the consumer and me, the rancher, all connected. The mill, the dye house, you know, the yarn maker, the who sells the yarn, who tells its story, designs the patterns. We're all part of this story. The media, mm-hmm. you, bringing these stories and making these connections, we're all part of it. And the more connected we are, the stronger we are mm-hmm. and the more meaningful it is and the more we build community. And so today what it is, yes, we can say to our brand partners, our our customers, whoever they are, whether a hand dyer mm-hmm. who wants shenical wool yarn, wool in their yarns to hand dye, yeah. or it's a company that's sourcing shenical wool for their yarn, mm-hmm. to the apparel brand who is sourcing the wool and the yarns to make finished goods. All of them now today, besides knowing we meet these leading benchmarks, and the RWS has become the leading benchmark standard in the world for responsibly produced wool. Mm -hmm. It's really grown around the world. We are the only supply of RWS certified wool in all of North America, United States and North America. Mm -hmm. And we also, by the way, are now dual certified to Nativa Regenerative. Nativa Regenerative, which is a standard owned by Chargeurs Group globally. So we are dual certified to these two leading standards. So not only do we meet the benchmarks, which gives people, the customer, more confidence, but today 
It isn't someone else saying, yes, they are regenerative in their land management practices and they treat animals well and their workers lead an incredible life. Mm -hmm. We are now being able to tell you that this wool represents cleaning X amount of CO2 out of the atmosphere on a total basis. That's my goal. That's where I want to get to. And in fact, my goal is that one day, companies who want to take themselves to net zero can source verified, measured, quality carbon sequestration credits from the same group of ranchers from which they source the beautiful fiber. See, you see, every one of us as humans, we're consumers. Mm -hmm. We all use electricity and water. We dispose of things. We waste. We drive. We fly. We are polluters, every one of us. Mm -hmm. And we can try to do better, and we all should. We can reduce our own waste. We can reduce our own emissions. But which of us can live a life that has a positive impact on the planet on a net basis? That's pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Unless you are managing broad landscapes. Because it's only those landscapes that can truly be managed in a way that can contribute positively to the whole ecosystem health and planet and climate. So it's important that we bring this information because this is the greatest thing that we provide. And it has, we have not recognized that in the past. Mm -hmm. We haven't measured it individually nor, nor as an industry. And it's time we did that. And so I knew that, I knew it was the only way we would ever truly give an answer to our impact and our value. And so I have invested in this comprehensive research for three years. Mm -hmm. And I hope that one day, you know, we're in, we're, we're perceived differently. Mm -hmm. That the first thought that comes to people's mind when they think of farmers and ranchers, especially as more and more people are in th this type of program, um, I hope that they recognize our greatest value. Mm -hmm. And this is very much informed by what you're doing locally, but people have started to take notice on a global scale. I mean, you mentioned to me about the, there's a global textile conference that, that you're going to speak at. Yes. Yes, this will be my third one in a row, I think. Um, I've sort of become a voice for the RWS globally. Mm -hmm. uh, because first of all, our family ranch was the first in the world. And now I've established a farm group, which is the only one in North America meeting these standards, which is growing, I mean, unbelievably. And I have a deep experience in this standard and connecting with other grower groups like us that are around the world. I mean, I've made great friends in New Zealand and Australia and South America and South Africa. When we go to the global conference, we all go out to dinner together, you know, and we're all sheep producers and farm groups from around the world, but we're connected, right? Because we have the same mission. So I will be speaking at the Global Textile Conference, giving an update specifically on my carbon initiative. And then I just learned this morning that one of my ranchers in my Shenico group is going to be on the program also in a different session to talk about the coexistence of species hmm. and our non-lethal approaches to predator issues around sheep raising, because we know that Predators happen to think that that lamb is delicious too. And so they 
they will kill your sheep mm. and dine on them. And we have a lot of predators, coyotes, uh, mountain lions, bears, you name it. They're dining on other animals. That's nature. Mm -hmm. That's how nature works. So what, what we have is a pretty successful non-lethal approach to predator issues, which is the use of livestock protection dogs, which are phenomenal animals in their own right, mm -hmm. with a purpose, as we all have in life, a purpose. And so what it speaks to is the coexistence of species, mm -hmm. as we are sheep raisers, how we deal with the issue around animals who would attack sheep, and how we, how we protect and deter that through the use of another species of animal works work, works really well with sheep production. And so that's another topic that we will address under this responsible wool standard is there are interests in supporting biodiversity, not just in plant communities, but animal communities. And how do we address that? And what are we doing to do that in a way that is, you know, allowing coexistence? You have these impressive results. And yet, it also seems to be kind of instinctive for you, that a lot of these choices that you're making, the way you speak about it, it seems like that's just the natural, logical choice. Well, I learn from people. I watch. Mm -hmm. And my husband, who passed away a little over a year ago, I watched him manage these relationships and natural resources for decades. I watched him, when nobody else was doing it, convert almost 4,000 acres of dry land farm ground to no-till, park the plow and say, we will never plow again mm. in the mid-90s. Nobody in our area was doing that. That's not how you did it. Mm -hmm. But he said, I don't ever want to see bare soil again. I will always want our soil covered. I, don't, I want to never see erosion. I don't want to see any water run off our land except in an existing creek or stream and under control. I don't want to give invaders plant species an opportunity to take hold. I want to encourage diverse quality plants to be healthy and vital to discourage invader species. And it's a whole host that goes on. I want to see more forage for our, our animals and wildlife. I want to see more wildlife. I want to see better water in better locations, more of it, and in better quality. And so everything he did with implementing this broad grazing management plan and off-stream water developments, capturing what God gives us and holding and storing and safely releasing the way the beavers used to do. The beavers have now come home. Beavers. And they've been gone. Yeah. We created a habitat that returned the beavers on their own. Okay, so now I'm trying to remember what your question was, but what I'm saying is I watched him do this. And then I admired him so much. Mm -hmm. And when we went down the RWS road, it was because he said, well, there, we don't have any reason not to do this. We have every reason to do it. This looks like an opportunity to me, not something to be afraid of. Let's mm -hmm. do it. And so we did. But each time you're challenged, it likes it takes you to the next level. So all this measurement is, is a continuation of the logical steps we've made to ensure natural resource health, 
which ensures not only our future on this land here, but it ensures our collective future. Mm-hmm. And it's the next logical step to continuing his legacy. And that's why it's the greatest investment I can make is because it is a continuation of his legacy. And it's being done amongst my whole group of farm group. Everybody that joins me, we will do this research because we are not the only people. There are a lot of a lot of people out there and different groups of people working on improving land stewardship and, um, you know, concerned about carbon and increasing in farming and ranching in ways that improve carbon sequestration. Our government is getting very involved in supporting us as farmers and ranchers and stewards of bigger landscapes, our foresters on this issue. This is not, you know, we are not alone. We're just one sample. We're just one example. This is just my effort. And, um, but there are many, many ranchers besides us that have been working on these issues for a long, long time. This isn't new. This is not new. But it is um, sometimes some new terminology comes to play. And we will get new markets because carbon, for the first time in history, is really becoming an emerging new commodity. Mm-hmm. Carbon's now a commodity, and people will be trying to figure out how to engage with that. So for me, this is common sense, Anne. <laughs> it's common sense. It's logical. If you're out here on the ground, this is your life. Yeah. And you're more and more connected to the urban uh, communities and products, particularly with brands, with both restaurants, with um, the eaters of the product the users of the yarns and the fibers, the more connected we are, the more we learn from each other. And this project supports more learning around the value of the farmers and ranchers on the ground. And I I don't know that there's a greater thing I can do right now than that. It's really an example of the long view. And I hear the history of the Imperial Stock Ranch, the 150 years, and of course, the millennia of land use that goes before it, but you're really keeping your eye on how this will affect people beyond our time horizon and, and also beyond the horizons of your, like you're, you're looking at, at the horizons of your ranch, but also thinking about what happens beyond those horizons too. Well, you know, um, this land grounds you every day. The land and the animals remind you that you're temporary. You're a temporary steward. I could be gone tomorrow. My husband is gone. And the oldest son is now carrying on. And, and it's fabulous to watch him step into and fill those boots and be totally ready. It, it's, it, I mean, you just, you just feel blessed. But I also want to say that every family that's joined me in this, and again, I, I don't have to recruit. They're recruiting each other. The work itself is recruiting growers. But every one of these families are multi-generational. And that speaks to your question. It's not something I have to think about, about the long view. When your children and grandchildren are on this land with you, it's, it, it also is a daily reminder of the future. How will you leave this in a way that's productive for them? And so it's very personal. Every family in my group, Shanika Wool Company's family ranches, are multi-generational and have been on their lands and doing this, this same tending of sheep for 100 years or more. 
We have a deep, rich heritage collectively, individually and collectively. And so we don't have to think about, we don't have to be philosophical because the very land itself and our families set the stage to live a life that is concerned about what comes tomorrow, not just today. I mean, yes, we hope there are profits in agriculture or you go away. Mm-hmm. But most farmers and ranchers, you go, you go ask them, they'll talk about working to break even. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's one of the beauties of this project. My growers make 20 to 25% more than the best U.S. price for their wool by being part of this program. Wow. And I ensure that. Mm-hmm. Shanical Wool buys all their wool at a very good premium. Mm-hmm. And then Shanical Wool sells it. Shanical Wool pays all costs to be certified in this program. They don't have to take anything from their wool bottom line. All of it goes to their bottom line. They like that. And we also stand to benefit in future ways based on the research that I'm investing on in right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm investing in this research, Shanico Wool is, not just on our ranch, but on all this land, two and a half million acres, because I know it's, it's a, there's a potential for a coming market for that ecosystem value. And if our, if our apparel brand partners happen to join that effort, mm-hmm. they have the potential, as I think I said earlier, to not only take the wool into the beautiful product and know the people that bring it and, and, the, and what's happening on the ground. And with the, that's the beauty of fully traceable and so on. But, but also to, to invest in a credit, a quality credit, that doesn't take away their responsibility to reduce their own pollution, mm-hmm. to reduce their own emissions. No, all citizens of the planet right now need to be doing that. And many, many corporations are. Many governments are working for that. All of us. But it, the, these new markets will be a legitimate framework for these brands to actually invest in regenerative work on the ground and And those markets require us to spend those dollars for an ecosystem harvest right back on the land. So this is not anybody's get-rich-quick scheme. This is a legitimate way to bring new stakeholders to the table to invest in regenerative, positive ecosystem impacts. And together, we ensure our ability to manage those landscapes and animals. So it helps us as farmers. It helps the whole community the whole human community, and it helps the brands on their sustainability targets. So it's this is a new arena, and we are one of the players working on this. So I'm not, I don't feel like I'm visionary, Anne. I feel like I'm logical and practical, and it comes from having your boots on the ground every day and seeing the creator's relationships that were put here. But it gives me chills to think about all the good that you're doing and also the passion that you talk about this. I, I feel kind of honored to get to participate as a consumer. I'm, I'm speechless, Anne. I, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a ranch wife in the Oregon desert. I keep my head down and do the work in front of me. And if God blesses that, so be it. But, you know, I can't worry about everything and, and what everybody else is doing, but I sure can. I sure can find a way to document the real power 
of what we as a group of ranchers are delivering. And I am so committed to that. I'm, I, I will, I'm climbing a mountain on this because there are a lot of obstacles, but I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. I'm, I'm reaching for that summit. And all that is what the Shanika will name means. So it's so exciting to hear about this project. Like, Thank you. I was going to say your so. new project. It's not so. really a new project, but. It's not new. It's a continuation of 150 years. It's a continuation of collective, a century of the family ranches. It's a continuation of a wool industry, which has been vital to humankind mm-hmm. for over 10,000 years. I'm just one small player dancing my dance and you know really it's the symphony of sheep it's the wool dance that begins on the soil with the the sheep going across the landscape you know and then the wool is harvested and and then we have you when we have you know when I began this work in 1999 who helped me I knew nothing you know who helped me who a family of fiber artisans around me, crocheting, felting, spinning, weaving, knitting, going, Jeannie, look what I made from your wool. And I'd be like, oh, can you make me the pattern for that so we can sell the pattern? This was a whole tribe of skilled, traditional needle arts artisans. I mean, you know, I didn't know anything about the needle arts. I didn't know anything Mm -hmm. about those skills. And at first, I thought it was important to save sheep to the ranch. It was important to keep wool in the in humans, you know, in the human culture. And uh, but I didn't learn those lessons yet. All these people have taught me. It's just been an evolutionary process. That's the journey. That's what's in my book: stories of fashion, textiles, and place, evolving sustainable supply chains. It's available. And um, it's my story and then four other companies who have built these sustainable, they're telling about their stories around the globe that have done similar things to what I did using local people. And, but the traditional skills, let me get back to that, of knitting and crochet and weaving and spinning and felting and hand dyeing and, and using materials to dye. And you know the way it's always been. These skills are as important today as they have ever been in the history of humankind. And it's, we, we need to support the people who continue to hone those skills, teach those skills, and display those skills. So I'm really at home with the craft sector. You know, that, that is like family. And uh, I, I, I'm gr- eternally grateful to those women and men who were part of the early part of my, of my journey. And today I have that same feeling. Shanika Wool would not exist without the support of the U.S. supply chain. Those people inside the scouring facility and combing the wool, spinning it and dyeing it and making yarns, the knitting factories, the weavers, the finishers, the cut and sew, all of these people are part of the journey. And the designers inside the brands who want to make the connection and and those companies coming home more now from offshore. You know, we are collectively a human community. And the more we tie those threads together, whether we're a hand knitter at home, a hand dyer, someone who tells the stories, somebody's got to craft those stories. 
there's as much art in that as there are in any other step. And so we need the designers. We need the teachers. We need the media. We need everybody connecting us. It makes us richer. Jean, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. It's just so moving and inspiring and powerful. Thank you so much for sharing it with me and and for your time today. Well, thank you. And I've always told people it takes everybody, whether you buy a skein of yarn or 10,000 pounds, we're all the same. It takes everybody. Everybody's equally important. And I have been saying that for almost 25 years, and it's true today. Um, So I thank you. I thank your listeners and for appreciating and and listening in on the Shanika Wool Company story, which is my latest journey. And I'm just going to keep climbing my mountain and carrying on the work um, that Dan inspired in me and that our, our children are carrying on today. Thanks to Trainway Silks and Handweaving.net for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.